0: We know many of you, having served in so a number of churches on the east side of the continent, and it's good to be back with you again for this occasion. I think it's time for a change, don't you? I mean, after all, isn't that what our politicians always say to us in our never-ending election cycle? But in the words of a recent popular song, I say... So wake me up in the morning when it's all over, when I'm wiser and when I'm older. Neither party is going to correct what's wrong with our country, let alone what's wrong with this world. And today begins in type the restoration of the kingdom of God to this troubled planet. How desperately we need God's government to lead us into a peaceful and prosperous world tomorrow. But the government of God is very different from our Republican democracy. It is a kingdom. And there have been various ideas about what is the kingdom of God through Christian history. One is this eternal state or heaven into which one comes after death with no relationship to the earth at all. Another is a non-material or spiritual kingdom in which God rules in the hearts of men. Though related to the present age, it's unrelated to the earth. A third is a purely earthly kingdom without spiritual realities attached to it. It's a political and social structure to be achieved by the efforts of men. This was a very popular view in the social gospel of the early 1900s. Even Zionism has been called the Kingdom of God, a movement to reestablish the Israeli state. The most popular view in Christian history has been the visible, organized church is the Kingdom of God. In the 4th century, Emperor Constantine ruled, and that was known as the Constantinian Era. And one of the textbooks that I use in my Christian history class for a Living University by Justo L. Gonzalez, called The Story of Christianity, says this on page 154. Since the time of Constantine, and this is 4th century, and due in part to the work of Eusebius and of many others of similar theological orientation, there was a tendency to set aside or postpone the hope of the early church, that its Lord would return in the clouds to establish a kingdom of peace and justice. In subsequent times, As long as the Constantinian era endured, most individuals and movements that rekindled eschatological hope and time hope were branded as heretics and subversives and condemned as such. It would be only as the Constantinian era approached to, to its end, particularly in the 20th and 21st centuries, that eschatology would once again become a central theme in Christian theology. Another book I use in that class is called A History of the Christian Church by Lars P. Qualbin, and he comments on the 5th century when St. Augustine, Augustine, as he has been called, wrote The City of God. The City of God exerted a profound influence, this author says, upon Western Christianity. It formed the religious background for the theory of medieval papacy. The Roman Curia of the Middle Ages actually transformed the Civitas Dei into the Civitas terrena, represented by a visible church empire ruled by the Bishop of Rome. The City of God also accentuated that sharp distinction between sacred and secular, which still has so much influence in Western civilization. How else can we find our way through this maze of ideas than to go to the only authoritative source for information about the kingdom of God? How different is the government of God as revealed in Scripture? And so this sermon is going to be a survey through the Old Testament of the rulership of God over men. The title of today's sermon is The Theocratic kingdom in the Old Testament, the theocratic kingdom in the Old Testament. And I'll define that term for you in a little bit. The overarching theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God, God's perfect and undisputed rule over all that he has created. Many think that salvation is the unifying theme of Scripture. And it's involved certainly, but salvation is the means whereby sinners enter the eternal kingdom. The word "kingdom," as used in the Bible, means kingly rule or reign, not just for the territory, or, uh, not just for the territory ruled by the king, but the entire administration as well as territory, subjects, laws, etc. And the theme of the kingdom, its founding, disruption, and restoration, is the overarching message which extends from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. All the other elements in the Bible story find their places beneath it. And they are separate incidents of the continuous story from eternity to eternity. This gives unity to the Bible and significance to its various parts. The early church saw its story as part of this continuing progression of the history of God's reign that had begun in the Old Testament. In the beginning, God is the way the Bible begins. That was the kingdom of God from the very start. In the beginning, God. And I'm going to recite several scriptures for you. We'll not turn to them. And we will turn to others. But I want to give you this first set about verses about the eternal kingdom. or The eternal king, rather. The Psalms say, the Lord is king forever and ever. And the Lord sits king forever. For my God is king of old. And Jeremiah says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting King. And in his Lamentations, Jeremiah writes, Thou, O Lord, remain forever, thy throne from generation to generation. So a, he's the eternal King. And he's also described as the universal King. Chronicles, when David is preparing to build the temple, writes, Thine is the kingdom the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. And some of those words are reworked by Jesus in the model of prayer, as you recognize. And then in the Psalms again, the Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And in Daniel, in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, an angel says that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. But God's kingdom has ruled through human agents on this planet. One of the Proverbs says this, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the river is a water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And in that colorful language of the Hebrew, it's describing that a good king who is pliable, whose heart is like an irrigation ditch that channels water for a garden, can produce much good, but God is the one that channels him. God can still move a wicked king to accomplish his will, and we have scriptural examples of it, but God sovereignly controls political powers. For example, in Isaiah, God sends the Assyrian king as his agent against Israel. And we have scripture. Well, I have verses for all of these. And in Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant, he's called, to punish Judah. At least temporarily, whether he knew it or not. In Jeremiah, God uses the Medo-Persian empire to punish, punish Babylonian. In Isaiah, and Ezra. Cyrus the Great was God's shepherd to punish Babylonia and free the house of Judah and allow them to come back in the era of the restoration. So God deals sovereignly through men, some of whom recognize it, some of whom reject it, some of whom are utterly ignorant of it. And yet God's will is accomplished. His government has been challenged multiple times throughout human history, and even before. We read of a great covering archangel, a cherub, that Ezekiel the prophet and Isaiah described for us, who went astray and rebelled against that sovereignty of God. Let's turn and start in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12. I want you to notice the I wills that come from the mouth of Lucifer. Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12. God says through the prophet, how are you fallen from heaven? Oh, Lucifer, I'm reading from the King James Bible with word substitutions here and there. But how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, and notice the I wills, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Did you ever notice that before? I. The big I. I will ascend into heaven, he says. Why? To take up his abode in the third heaven. He had been assigned territory here. Mr. Herbert Armstrong's book, Mystery of the Ages, explains that administration. And so he rises in rebellion to try to kick God off his throne. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, symbols of angels. He aspired to the possession of a throne of his own ruling over all the angels of God instead of just the one-third that he had been assigned. I will also sit upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north. The mount is a phrase which could refer to the seat of divine government in heaven. And the congregation, in this case, could refer to the angels that surround God's throne. He wanted to be master of the universe. Then he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Clouds are used over a hundred times to relate to God's presence and glory in the Bible. Do you remember what was over the tabernacle in the wilderness in the time of Moses? A cloud, a glorious shining cloud that the Jews have called the Shekinah cloud. I will send myself above the heights of the clouds. Lucifer wanted the glory which belongs to God alone. And his kingdom had been assigned below the clouds on earth. But that wasn't good enough. And then he says, fifthly, I will be like the Most High. His true motives and methods are now revealed. He wanted to be like God in power and glory, though not in character. And this title, the Most High, signifies the possessor of heaven and earth. He wanted authority over heaven and earth. That is all that exists. Following that, God made, remade, Creation. And on that sixth day, he created creatures in his own likeness and image. And in that first temptation, Genesis 3, the serpent who represents the devil says to Mother Eve, when he tempts her to take of that forbidden fruit, God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall be as gods. He instills this same rebellious spirit in her that he himself had had. You shall be as gods. That's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be God. And each phase of Satan's original sin was an act of rebellion against this constituted authority of God and was motivated by a covetous desire to appropriate that very sovereignty for himself. As a result of this sin, Satan now rules over a kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of evil. And he's called the God of this age. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And possessor of the kingdoms of the world. Remember Jesus' temptation in Luke 4? Luke 4. Let's turn there. Luke 4, starting in verse 5. Luke 4, starting in verse 5. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, Luke 4, verse 5, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this power, all this authority, will I give you and the glory of them. For that is delivered to me and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Part of the temptation was that the devil was tempting Jesus with the authority of the world's governments. You can be boss now. You can rule the governments of the earth and not have all their glory now. You won't have to go through the suffering of the crucifixion. If you'll do one thing. Here's the hook. Verse 7. If you will worship me, all be yours. You see, we worship God. And that tells you again his true motivation. He wanted worship. He wanted to be recognized as God. And Jesus does not dispute that he is such a ruler and that he has such authority. Though this certainly is limited by God's sovereignty, but he was a pseudo ruler. In British history, such a usurper is called a pretender. Here is the pretender of the earth. and He's offering Jesus in this temptation. And Jesus does not bite at all. He quotes back to Satan three times in the book of Deuteronomy. The word of God stood firm. Christ does not deny Satan's right to make such an offer to him, but he viewed them as Satan's domain in which he had the right to do with them as he willed temporarily in God's overall plan. And Jesus knew there was more to the story than what was the immediate. As a result of Satan's rebellion, God instituted a plan prior to the reformulation of the earth. To manifest his sovereignty before all his created beings. Let's go to Matthew 25 and verse 32. Matthew 25, verse 32. We're going to home in on a particular word in this passage. Matthew 25, verse 32. This is after the parable of the talents. It says, And before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, he shall set the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left. And then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And I want to home it in the word foundation. Katabole in Greek. Foundation. is a word if you check into the lexicons. has the idea of casting down, overthrow, disruption, and ruin. That God had prepared a kingdom since the time of the disruption of the government of God under Satan's rebellion. And so, God inaugurates a program that many scholars call the theocratic kingdom program, that step-by-step God was preparing those made in his image to rule with him forever and ever. It's called a theocracy. Theocracy, spelled T-H-E-O-C-R-A-C-Y, is a government of the state by the immediate direction of God. Not merely a religious direction, but a political one, too. And God rules through divinely chosen representatives who speak and act for him. That's a theocracy. The word is not in the Bible. It's not biblical in origin, but the idea certainly is there. It's one of the main tenets of Scripture, as I am explaining. The word theocracy comes from two roots. Theos. God, kratos, power, rule. So it means rule by God, the rule of God. And in the theocracy, God is lawgiver. You see, that's the legislative. In a theocracy, God is judge. That's your judicial. And in a theocracy, God is ruler. And that's the executive. Three branches of government. But not just of Israel, but of all the world. That's where we're going. That's where we're heading. But he rules through human agents at this time. The term does not appear in the Bible, as I said, though the concept of theocracy is quite old. The first person, apparently to use the word, was a first century Jewish historian named Josephus. Josephus apparently coined the term. and He seems to have realized he had coined a phrase. And what he did, he used the term theocracy in opposition to a monarchy where a human king rules over a nation strictly on a human level. The first human king mentioned in Scripture is Nimrod. talks about his kingdom in Numbers 10. And Josephus. Contrasted theocracy with oligarchy, a government in which supreme power is in the hands of the few. And he contrasted it with a republic, a form of government in which the supreme power is held by the voting public, which elects its representatives and executive offers to govern the country. But apparently Josephus confused God's role as ultimate authority versus the human role of the role of humans as mediators and this confusion still exists to this day from the outset of this program there has been one continuous connected progressive development of God's plan though there have been various phases of this program we're going to work through the phases in the rest of the sermon all the organs of government were without any independent power and exist simply to announce and execute God's will. And he would declare this will through priests at times, through prophets at other times, and he wrote it into his law. Even civil and criminal law was looked at from a religious perspective. So let's go back to look at theocracy at the dawn of human history. A true theocracy was established in the time of creation, in the beginning God, and later again at that time of recreation, Genesis 1-2. And God delegated his authority first to this angel, Lucifer, but then later to this creature made in his own image, in his own likeness, who was to rule over the earth as God's agent. Adam derived his authority from God so he was to submit to God's leading. But the rulership was God's. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. And this explains the mission that God gave Adam and Eve right here at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1, 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, fowl the air, every living thing that moves upon the earth. This is known by theologians as the dominion mandate, that God was now sharing his authority with these creatures. And they were to rule the lesser creatures, the creatures not made in God's image. And they were to subdue the earth, the word has to do with harnessing the potential and using its resources for development and for one's advantage. But instead of shepherding these resources, we have abused them, misused them, exploited them. We Americans almost completely wiped out the American bison before we came to our senses and saved the last few. And now today in Africa... The elephant is on the verge of extinction because of poaching. We've not done very well subduing the earth. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. You see, subduing doesn't just mean ruling and using for your own pleasure selfishly. It means managing, governing wisely, thinking of the potential and of the future. As a true steward would do. A manager. Genesis chapter 2. Starting in verse 19. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. And brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever call Adam called every living creature. That was the name thereof. And it's well known. Among commentators, that when God gave Adam the authority to name the creatures, it showed his overseership. In other words, he was the steward and he had the right to name these creatures. And he used that authority by giving them names. And every creature that Adam named was the name thereafter. And then, verse 23, after Eve was created. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken from Ish, man. He called her, see, he called her man, showing his overseership of a new family. The government of the family right here in the home. Mr. Meredith wrote articles years ago king and queen of the home. You see, he was now the leader of this new unit, the human family, in which God was sharing his power on earth through these agents. And so the home was established with its own authority. But their eternal life depended upon perfect obedience of both man and woman, and had they done this, this everlasting kingdom would have gone on into existence with all of its glory for the entire earth. But instead, we decided we didn't care for that government or we were deceived or combination of things between the two of them. We read in Genesis 3, something went wrong, terribly wrong. The serpent was more subtle than the, any beast of the field, which eternal God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, as God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Why was she even talking to this snake? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. And so begins the lie, as the New Testament calls it in Greek. The lie. You'll not surely die. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes will be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And sadly, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant for the eyes, tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit, Thereof, and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the rest is history. In marches, the immortal soul doctrine, humanism, denial of God's word, Gnosticism with all of its mystery religions. And we've suffered as a consequence ever since. Man tried to rid himself of the sovereign rule of God, his king, by submitting to the competing kingdom of Satan. But even then, God in His mercy announced the next phase of the plan of the theocratic kingdom. Genesis 3.15. In His mercy, because God wasn't through with these creatures made in His image. He says to these creatures, I will put enmity between you, Satan, the snake, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this has been long recognized as the first messianic prophecy. It's called the proto-evangelium. That is the first hint, first prophecy of a coming Savior. A Messiah who would Overcome the devil and rescue these people and give them a chance to repent and come back to God and enter into his theocratic kingdom. And this line led to the Messiah through Seth, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, then to Judah, and then to one family of Judah, David. More about him later. This is called the Proto-Evangelium. In Genesis 4, <clears throat> Adam knew his wife. She conceived and she bare a Canaan and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. God has been gracious. He's sharing his creative powers with us. And this baby that she bears, she, God has shared his creative power through this couple by the reproduction and she helps produce a child, produce a man, a boy, as God had made Adam. And she's rejoicing that this boy has something to do with the fulfillment of that prophecy leading up to the coming of a Messiah. I have gotten a man from the Lord. I have gotten a man, even Yahweh. And Mashiach Yahweh is a term used in Hebrew Yahweh the Messiah. Our New Testament relates it as Christ the Lord. Now that will come much later, but this is preparing the stage for the coming of God's own only begotten Son. And so this plan of salvation parallels the development of God's ongoing kingdom plan. By the medium of redemption, mankind reestablishes God's authority over their lives. Because that's that's what repentance is all about, isn't it? When you came to those baptismal waters, you see, you're no longer your own master. I surrender. I recognize God is sovereign. He will now rule my life. And you re-enter that authority of God. And so the rest of the Bible prepares us to understand where this is all going, phase by phase. But in the meantime, there still had to be government. God was not going to leave the earth in a chaotic state. And so we have a a hint of it over in Genesis 9, verse 6. Genesis 9, verse 6. God establishes, institutes human government. Unfortunately, human governments haven't always listened to God. They've listened more to the present ruler of this age. Genesis 9, 6. God says, whoever sheds man's blood... By man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. See, there was to be a system of justice, and mankind has interpreted that system of justice in all kinds of varieties throughout these 6,000 years. But there had to be something to prevent chaos and anarchy. And so God allowed mankind to experiment and try out all these different forms of government, and we're still trying them out. You see, it's time for a change, isn't it? So we're being told once again, and in a way I agree with them, but I think the change is not going to be what they expect. So here is the system of justice being brought in. And Paul reestablishes this in Romans 13, where he says that the governor is a minister of God. A revenger to execute wrath upon the evildoer. That's right. If you read Romans 13 closely, you see God established that. And the anti-government crowd today don't realize they're battling against God. Let's move on in time from creation. Let's go to the age of the patriarchs. With the calling of Abraham, God selected one man through whom he would establish his purpose upon earth and through whom all men would be blessed. And that purpose centered in certain promises concerning land, descendants, and blessings that would eventually confirm by an unconditional covenant. And during the period of the patriarchs, this theocracy was administered through certain divinely appointed representatives. For example, Moses. After the Israelites had escaped Egypt in Exodus 15, Moses writes this magnificent hymn. The scholars tell us it's the oldest hymn of praise in existence. The Song of Moses, it's called in Exodus 15. And there he says, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Moses knew that whatever administration he was executing through the Israelites came from God's power. In Exodus 19, starting in verse 4. Exodus 19, verse 4. This explains this phrase that has often puzzled me through the years. What did God mean by this? Exodus 19, verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, God says. Exodus 19, verse 4. Bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself, and now therefore, if you obey my voice... Indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar or a special people, special treasure to me unto above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. A kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, Israel was to become this system of theocratic government on earth. If they had submitted to him, that would have been possible. God was still the king, but he was sharing his authority on earth with these people, of this forsaken family that now he has just rescued from Egypt. The whole nation would be God's priest to serve on his behalf throughout for all creation, all the nations of the world. And they would instruct the nations of the world who this God was, the true God, the God of Israel. And they were to mediate for these people by teaching them God's principles. That's what God offered Israel. Unfortunately, they didn't live up to it. Why? Why do we continually see this failure? God keeps offering. Mankind fails. Well, Paul explains it's because we have a hostile nature. A nature that's hostile against God. We want to be independent. We want to govern ourselves. Whose spirit is that? Is that God's spirit? See, we read about that spirit not long ago. And then Deuteronomy 33, verse 4. Moses coming near the end of his life now. He blesses the tribes Deuteronomy 33 verse 4 Moses commanded us a law Deuteronomy 33:4 Moses commanded us a law even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob and he was he is the modifier or antecedent in this case is God he going back to verse 2 he was king in Jeshuan. Jeshurun is a poetic or pet name for Israel. When the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together. See, Moses explains, God was their king. Acts tells us that Moses was a ruler and a judge, but that's just all under God's government. And this explains why Moses is so upset that when they grumble and murmur against Moses... He says, you're not just grumbling and moaning against me. You're defying God. This is the authority of God upon earth. And so we go through the age of the patriarchs. And Joshua, who succeeds Moses, the general who takes the people across the Jordan River and helps in conquering the land, he leads the people as God's administrator. In fact, we are told that Moses was told, go and pick Joshua. And Pass on that authority to him. Nobody else. Joshua. And Joshua's name, of course, as you know from Hebrew, relates to Jesus who became our Savior. And then near the end of his life, Joshua says this. Choose you, speaking to the entire nation, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we have that on a plaque in my office this very day. It's one of my favorite verses. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But you have to make up your own mind. Because God gave mankind that free will to choose. And we've usually chosen poorly. Let's move on now beyond the age of the patriarchs to the age of the judges. After the patriarchs, God moved to a new administration of this kingdom government, that of the judges. Though he would also convey his will through priests, because they were still functional in this time period, though not with the same influence they once had under Moses. And God raises up men that are deliverers or heroes, those who administered God's justice. These were gifted leaders who were brought up by God. They were called judges. Now, we get a wrong sense when we think of judge today. Judges then were not these black-robed magistrates, banging gavels. No, they were heroes, deliverers. And God would raise them up. We read that in Judges too. God raised them up. And God gave Israel judges for a period of about 450 years until Samuel, the prophet, And Samuel is the last of these judges and the first of the order of the prophets that will succeed. The time of the judges. But the judges realized that they were not to become kings because God was Israel's king. Look what Gideon says in Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. Judges 8, starting in verse 22. Judges 8.22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule you over us, both you and your son. Hereditary rulership. And your son's son also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, neither will my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. He knew where the seat of power was. He did not want a hereditary kingship. This is 200 years after Moses, 150 years before King Saul. And yet Israel, even then, still were inclined to have a human king. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6. And all the men of Shechem gathered together in all the house of Milo and went and made Abimelech, Gideon's son, by the plain of the pillar that was in made him king by the plane of the pillar that was in Shechem. His son usurps God's sovereignty. And that's just a foretaste of what will come later. It won't succeed, but it's coming. And now 1 Samuel 3. 1 Samuel 3. And so we're in the age of the judges, and Samuel is at the end of that period. 1 Samuel 3. Verse 19, and Samuel grew, you know the story of him as a boy being called to serve. He grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. Whatever Samuel said was backed up by God. 1 Samuel 3, 19. Why? Why was that so? You see, because Samuel was now acting as a prophet. That's what a prophet did. They spoke for God. And all Israel, from Dan, even to Beersheba, north to south, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet, a spokesman of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Eternal revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And this is now what the prophets convey to Israel as a people. The word of the Lord. They were not speaking their words. At least they weren't supposed to. What they delivered was the word of the Lord. It had authority, it had power. They spoke for God. And so it begins with Samuel. and Samuel now is the one, who begins this order that will go on for hundreds of years of spokesmen for God. Israel demands a king, as we'll see, to become like all the other nations. And this is regarded by Samuel as tantamount to apostasy and rejection of God, and an attempt to dethrone him. Human monarchy, human monarchy, was an alien importation into Israel. And Israel was uneasy even then about doing so, to import this secular monarchy, trying to take to itself the honor and authority that rightly belongs only to God. And so at the beginning, there seems to be some reticence, even about calling their ruler king. Partly because it was a Canaanite term, melek, melek, king. And partly because of the feeling that it was a title that belonged to God alone. And instead, they wanted to refer to their human ruler by the word captain, prince, or ruler. Look at First Samuel 9. 1 Samuel 9:15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in the ear a day before Saul came. 1 Samuel 9: verse 15. This is when Saul is chosen king. We'll get to that in just another minute. But I want to point out the word they preferred to call this human leader. 1 Samuel 9:15. Uh, again, the Lord told Samuel in the day in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send a man out to the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be a captain. To be captain. Captain, prince, ruler over my people Israel that he may save, See, over my people Israel that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. 17. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man whom I spoke to you of, this same shall reign over my people. So go back to chapter eight. And here's the story of how Saul becomes king. For Samuel eight, verse four, then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel to Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Your sons walk not in your ways. So now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Isn't that peculiar? There's something, especially when you go through certain phases of your life where you want to be just like everybody else. We want to be like all the nations around. Why do we have to be so different all the time? But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel Prayed to God. He knew this was an emergency. And the Lord said to Samuel, verse 7, Go ahead, hearken to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. See? It's theocracy they're rejecting. According to all the works, verse 8, which they had done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, wherewith they have forsaken me, and they served other gods, so do they also to you. And now, therefore, hearken to them, albeit yet protest solemnly to them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Verse 19. Verse 19. And he warns them, you know, your king's going to tax you heavily. He's going to take your boys for his army, take your girls to be their cooks. And you're going to cry in agony over what you've done. Verse 19 Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, Nay, but we will have a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see, they wanted some way to go and be the spear point of their military efforts. They wanted a human king. When God said he was the great warrior, he would defend them. He had done so. But no. We've got to have a human leader. You see, this is in a time period where every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so as a result, God passes to a new form of theocratic administration. That of the Israelite monarchs. Verse 22. The Lord said to Samuel, hearken to their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, go you every man to a city. Get ready. So now we move from the time of the judges to the Israelite kingdoms, Israelite monarchs. The monarchical form of government was the one to which God was heading, He had prophesied about its coming, in fact. This anticipated fulfillment of the whole program comes through one who was to be a king. Genesis 49, verse 10. He had prophesied that there would be a king. And he's still heading in that direction. And now we're going to that age of the Israelite monarchs. Genesis 49, verse 10. Speaking of the different tribes of Israel and of Judah, it is said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And to him shall the gathering of the people be. Genesis 49:10. The scepter, the royal scepter. He's a lawgiver. His name is Shiloh. And Jewish and Christian scholars have all recognized through the centuries this is a Messianic prophecy. And to him shall be the gathering of the people. They're going to, he's going to enable them to come back to the government of God. Now that's prophesied hundreds of years before Samuel's time, way back in Genesis. And then in Numbers chapter 24, these Confusing stories about Balaam, this false prophet. And even he, because he could only speak the word of God as much as he was in it for the money and the prestige and the power. Look what he says. Numbers 24, verse 15. This strange character, Balaam. Numbers 24:15, And he took up this parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, has said, and the man whose eyes were opened has said, he has said, <clears throat> verse 16, verse, uh, Numbers 24, <clears throat> He has said, Which heard the words of the Lord and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having His eyes open, I shall see Him, but not now. I shall behold Him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Seth. Etc. Verse 19, out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him the remains of the city. The star sometimes represented a king. And out of Israel, this prophecy is given out of Israel, will come someone who will govern. And it seems that this prophecy is probably retained in the east and led to the coming of the wise men to worship Jesus, when they saw his star, they made the connection. Remember, Abraham had been promised kings shall be born unto you. Kings were promised unto Jacob. But once the kingship was established through Samuel, the king was the symbol of God's theocratic kingdom. First Samuel ten, verse nineteen. So we're in the age of the Israelite monarchs. First Samuel ten nineteen. And when all the kings that were servants sorry, that's second Samuel. I want 1 Samuel. I mean that's a good verse too. It's in the Bible. You can keep it there. But it's not the one I wanted at this point. 1 Samuel ten verse 19. And you have this day rejected your God who himself saved you out of all your adversaries and your tribulations. And you have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So we're coming up to the inauguration of King Saul. Chapter 12, 1 Samuel 12, verse 12. 1 Samuel twelve, twelve. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of children of Ammon, came against you, You you said to me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Samuel protests. God had been your king. Verse 13, Now therefore behold the king whom you have chosen, whom you desire. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Fourteen. If you will fear the Lord, serve Him and obey His voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both you and the King that reigns over you continue following the Lord your God. Conditional, following God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Eternal, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. God grants the request, part of His discipline of the nation, the king was their choice, but Saul was God's choice. First Samuel twelve, sixteen. Now therefore stand and see this great thing, and the Lord what the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today I will call to the Eternal? He shall send thunder and rain, and you shall perceive and see your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Eternal and asking for you a king. So Samuel called the Eternal, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Eternal and Samuel. God is driving home the lesson. This was a bad choice. Verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants under the Lord your God that we die not, for we have added to all of our sin this evil, asking us a king. And Samuel said to the people, Fear not, you've done all this wickedness, Yet turn not aside from following the eternal, but serve him with all your heart. And turn not aside, for then should you go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they're vain. For the eternal will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. That's called grace. God will not forsake his people for his name's great name's sake, because it has pleased the eternal to make you his people. And moreover, As for me, God forbid that I should sin against the eternal and ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and right way. Only fear the eternal, serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be consumed. Both you and your king. He warned them. So this Israelite king was not a king in the usual sense of the term as used by the Gentiles. He was the Lord's anointed. First Samuel, second Samuel, Psalms all say that. The spirit of the Lord came upon him with an anointing. He was a prince, a captain, a ruler of the eternal. He ruled over the Lord's heritage. First Samuel 10 verse 1. These Israelite monarchs were not ruling over their own territory, their own government, as they willed. 1 Samuel 10, 1. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on the head of Saul and kissed him and said, 1 Samuel 10, 1, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you to be captain over his inheritance? Over God's heritage. God's inheritance. Not Saul's. The people of Israel were not... The king's people, they were God's people. The king was God's shepherd. And even the throne itself was considered the throne of the Lord. Look at 1 Chronicles 28, verse 5. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 5. In all of your sons, for the Lord has given you, uh, us, given me many sons, David says years later, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. 1 Chronicles 25, 28, 28, 5. And he said to me, Solomon, your son, he shall build my house in my course, for I have chosen him to be my son and I'll be his father. Moreover, I'll establish his kingdom forever if he be constant to do my commandments and judgments as it is this day. See conditional again. The king was adopted as God's own son, as we just read here. This is a special relationship. God working through this human Israelite monarch. And this human kingship was of an entirely religious character. At least it was ideally to be so. It implied a unity of heaven and earth over Israel to act as God's representative. In fact, God insisted back in Deuteronomy, because God knew where he was going in this program, Deuteronomy chapter 17, that when the time came, there would be a king. It would have been prophesied. But this was going to be a different kind of a king. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. This is what he's going to study. Instead of going to great military colleges, he's going to read the book. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. And when you are come into the... Land which the Lord your God gives you and possess it, dwell therein. And, and you shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. I mean, this is Moses writing, and yet God knew where they were going. And he says, When the time comes and you want a king, you shall not, you shall in any wise set over him king over you whom the Lord your God shall choose. Verse 15 One from among your brethren shall you set king over you. You may not set a stranger over you, which is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Eternal has said to you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. He warns them about building up the military, taking on many wives. Verse 17. But verse 18, when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom... He shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. The law of God and It shall be with him. He shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the eternal of his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right or the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in the kingdom. He and his children in the midst of Israel. That is what he was supposed to have done. Saul, David, Solomon, all realized they were under the possible censorship of God if they disobeyed. And there are verses that explain that. So during this period, God has conceived even as going before the king in battle. So it says in 2 Samuel. The real ruler is God, and the authority of the throne of David that will come later is derived from him. But even the, the authority of this human monarch was limited. And the prophet, God's spokesman, could even dethrone that king. And he does. Samuel was told by God, you go and anoint David to replace King Saul. When Saul failed to live up to his role and responsibility, God chose for him a man after his own heart. And so David now comes into our story. The theocratic kingdom under David. Early in Saul's reign, it was announced that God had rejected him. He didn't do what God said, didn't listen to the prophet, was stubborn, self-willed. And the authority now was transferred to a shepherd boy. And from here on, God identified his kingdom with the Davidic line. One family, descending from a man called David. And there are scriptures that say the Davidic throne and kingdom is called the Lord's throne. The king is expressly designated as the Lord's anointed The prophets invariably identify the coming glorious, the future glorious kingdom of God as manifested through the line of David. See, God's moving into a new phase now. And God assured this with what's called as the Davidic covenant. That David's house, his dynasty, his kingdom and throne were to be established forever. And so we're into the age of David. And at that time, we come into the time period as well of these great spokesmen of God called prophets. Some of them wrote books. Some of them spoke only. The danger for the nation was then to begin to equate the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Israel, as if they were one and the same, no matter what the condition of the nation might be. And so what God has to do is now send up these spokesmen who take this tangled web, this thinking of thinking the Israelite kingdom is the same as the kingdom of God, and disentangle it from all the national, territorial, and dynastic limitations. Because these kings, for the most part, were wicked and did not rule righteously. And so the prophets, such as Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, continually proclaim, the Lord is king of Israel. He's king of the nations. His rule is not to be confused with the prospects of the political Israel. And so, as the nation declines under their kings, as they had wanted, who succeeded Solomon, we find a rise in the importance of the prophet, who speaks for God, because the kings are no longer acting on God's behalf. And the prophets were divinely appointed spokesmen for God who relayed God's message to these kings, who sometimes obeyed, but more often not, did not. Both kings and priests were expected to yield to the authority of the prophet because even the priests had gone astray, the religious types, the preachers. And many of Israel's kings turned out to be misfits or worse. And this led the nation to transfer its hope For an ideal king from the present to the future. And that was especially so with the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 587 B.C. God did not leave them without hope. David had become the model against which all the kings of Judah were compared in the Old Testament. You'll read that as you go through the historical books. He became the model as well for a future son of David who would be the ideal king, Mashiach, the anointed one. And Solomon's peaceful kingdom, however temporary, became a prototype of a much greater future reign of a son of David. And when the temple was threatened with being destroyed by the Babylonians in the days of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Ezekiel describes how God was removing his authority from the nation. Because they were so rebellious. And the way he describes it is this. That God's Shekinah glory that was there in the Holy of Holies begins to move. And it leaves the mercy seat. And then it goes to the threshold of the temple. Then it moves to the Mount of Olives. And from there it returns to heaven. It was a message that Ezekiel clearly understood that God was not going to work with that nation at that time in that fashion. The prospect of a future ruler of David was moving elsewhere. The monarchical kingdom of David passed from Palestine to the British Isles. And there would rule over the seed of Abraham until Shiloh should come. In the meantime, the times of the Gentiles are in effect. And this future theocratic kingdom now becomes the major theme of the prophets. Men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all speak of a coming future king. And it's frequently referred to in the Psalms. In fact, I've given entire feast sermons on the Psalms about this. And so the Messianic visions of the prophets are interwoven into the course of the history of the kings of Judah. And the ultimate restoration of the kingdom in the dynasty of David. And it's centered on the coming of a kingdom of God with Israel's redemption through the restoration of the throne of David. And that will introduce the age of eternal peace and righteousness that we are here celebrating in a foretaste under the universal reign of the son of David. And so the prophets leave behind prophecies about a future theocratic kingdom. And so they described this kingdom, as Mr. Poole did this morning from Isaiah 2, as being God's kingdom, and all the nations shall flow unto it and say, teach us of his ways, of your ways. But it's also government where there is a vice regent, so to speak, who acts for that God. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 9, 6. Passages that you've probably got well marked in your Bible from feasts gone by. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David. And upon his kingdom to order it. Establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth. Even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this. And these prophets describe a coming government of a son of David that's going to be theocratic. In fact, it's going to be led by Emmanuel. God with us. Emmanuel. It's to be heavenly in character. The kingdom of heaven, Matthew especially of the four gospels, prefers that phrase. It's ruled from heaven. It is to be centered in Jerusalem, though this government will be global. It's to be established by a returning messianic king, Zechariah 14. It's to be spiritual, though it's material and earthly, it's spiritual in that the will of God will be directly effective. In all matters of government and conduct. It's to be future. And the prophets are unanimous on this. There will be a coming judgment of the wicked. As a prelude to the establishment of God's righteous rule. God will have universal dominion. Not just over Israel. But all nations. God will raise or base his rule. On a new covenant. With Israel. With in Judah, in which the law is inscribed not just on tablets of stone, but in human hearts to govern the affections, the mind, the will. And they describe about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to come upon mankind as they submit to the will of God. It's going to bring in a time of universal peace, perfect peace, for all who are ruled by God. Isn't that what we all want? And then the book ends, the story ends in Revelation 21 and 22 with a new creation. A new creation. It's a marvelous section that kind of ends with a concluding chapter. And so in this story from Genesis Revelation, we have this one universal theme, the government of God. There's no room for a secular, man-made government here. All political, legal, social regulations are essentially to be theological. They are the direct and supreme expression of God's will. And so the future coming kingdom of God on earth is literal. It will be monarchical from the family of David. It will be a spiritual affair, for it's going to involve redemption, forgiveness to all those who repent. It will be ethical in its effects upon the values of the subjects. It will implement social and economic change. Dynamic improvement will be in the world's topography, climate, health, productivity of soil. Church and state will be united and ruled by the Savior King. And so far, we have sampled this theme to the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Does it somehow change what the kingdom of God means? Does it nullify these many promises or spiritualize them away for the church? Well, time is up. That will have to wait for another time.